Hey everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of The Liam McCollum Show. This will actually be the second episode released this week. I'm releasing two together, and this one will be relatively short compared to the rest, um, but just as interesting, if not more. I'm having Greg Miller on from The Washington Post. He is... He covers national security for the Washington Post and is the author of The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. He published the book in 2018 through the Washington Post and HarperCollins and was among the Post reporters awarded the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of Russia interference in the 2016 election and the fallout under the Trump administration. Miller was also a part of the team awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for public service for the paper's stories about U.S. surveillance programs exposed by former intelligence contractor Edward Snowden. I actually just found this out a little bit ago and I am super intrigued. Uh, we're going to be talking today about a story that he broke mid-February just about um, this company that the CIA secretly owned and that sold encryption devices to countries and spied on them. Um, I will ask a little about Edward Snowden and what it's like to be a journalist in the field, especially when dealing with stuff regarding national security. So. I hope you enjoy. Hello, it's Greg. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Good. How's it going? It's going. <laughs> it's going well. Um, you said in an earlier email that you you were envious of people who lived in Missoula. Have you ever been? Oh yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, it's been a while though. I was out there visiting uh, the journalism program one time. Um, maybe 10 years ago or so I've been I haven't been back to Missoula since then I've been back to Montana several times I was um, uh, in Bozeman and in Big Sky a year ago yeah it's, um, it's a really great place to live <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> <laughs> um, well yeah I, I wanted to bring you on just to talk I know you've come out with uh, two articles since your breaking story in February um, I, yeah. I want to talk about those articles as well as just what it's like um, being a reporter and dealing with like these these stories that the magnitude is just it's just crazy. So, um, but first off, can you give a little of your background? Um, how much background? Like, do you want? Um, do you mean my journalistic background yeah. and just my job presently, or more than that? Uh, your your journalistic background would be great. Sure. Um, so I, I am a national security correspondent for the Washington Post, which means I'm on the national staff here. My, my job has, has for many years been focused on covering U.S. intelligence agencies and the, and the things that they do uh, around the world. Um, and so I've done a lot of uh, terrorism-related stories, uh, and I was an important contributor to the Post's coverage of Russian interference in 2016, and the um, and the Ukraine scandal that that led to the impeachment of the president this past year. Mm. Um, so I mean that's uh, that's the sort of the focus for for my work. And uh, did you also you also worked on the stories about Edward Snowden? Yeah. Uh, so I was um, one of the reporters here at the Post who was involved in combing through the trove of documents that the Post got from Edward Snowden. Of course, 
that meant working very closely with Bart Gelman, who was the lead reporter on that package, and uh, and um, and uh, a longtime Washington Post reporter. And yeah, so that so the the Snowden stories, the Bin Laden operation, the Russian interference, the Ukraine scandal, the impeachment of the president. These are all. <laughs> it's been a busy time for a while. For yes, us. and now and now obviously this. Uh, this crypto AG story. So can you can you kind of dive into that and uh, basically tell us who, who what what this crypto AG com- company is um, and what the CIA's role in it was and what these encryption devices did basically. Yeah. So I'm gonna I want to um, caveat this by saying that it's a long and it's a convoluted story that yeah. takes that unfolds over many many decades. But let me try to boil it down. It basically comes down to the fact that for many many years there was a company in Switzerland called Crypto AG that sold encryption equipment to most of the governments in the world. Uh, these were devices and or machines that would scramble communications, whether it's phone calls or messages, um, uh, texts or things like this, scramble them into codes so that these governments' communications would be secure. When governments want to communicate, you know, send messages to their embassies overseas or to their spy agencies positioned abroad or to their military bases around the world, they want those messages to be secure. And Crypto AG was a company that said, we can do that. We can make it so that your messages will only be read by your people and nobody who's trying to grab them, them in the, along the way will be able to understand what's being said. Um, and it was the, the world's leading maker of this technology for a long time. What none of those customers ever knew was that the com- that Crypto AG was secretly owned by the CIA for most of that time, uh, was secretly rigging those machines that were supposed to keep all of those communications secret so that U.S. intelligence agencies could actually read everything that was being transmitted. So it was an enormous and long-running espionage operation with huge implications. Uh, I've covered this stuff for a very long time. I've never come across anything quite like this one. Mm. And uh, it, it seems that a lot of the employees weren't even aware of it, of crypto AG. Totally. So they... Right. So totally. So that's the this is a company and it's and it's functioning like a real company to the rest of the world. It looks like a real company with a real sales team, with a real research and engineering department, with a manufacturing floor. Uh, And those are all real workers, uh, hundreds of them. And none of them were ever told the truth. None of them was told that. This is an actual CIA operation here that you're working for. They, as far as they, as far as they knew, were working for a legitimate company. There were a couple of exceptions. This doesn't work unless you have a couple employees very high up. Uh, the chief executive of crypto always knew. There have been a number of chief executives over the years, but each one of them knew the truth. They were told when they were brought in, this is a CIA operation. You're going to be expected to do certain things. Um, but the rest of the employees were kept in the dark. And to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of the histories here, and we know of this now because we obtained classified documents that trace the entire history of the program, that the um, that 
part of the part of the challenge of this operation was keeping those employees in the dark and how much trouble it was and how hard it was at times to keep them, prevent them from figuring out what was really happening with the machines that they were building and selling all over the world. Mm. And uh, while reading some of your articles, it, it, it seemed that a lot of, at least um, there were some people like Bobby Ray and Min and um, people who wrote in these documents that actually seemed pretty proud of their endeavor, uh, um, saying that it was the intelligence coup of the century. Um, so what was, what was the goal of the CIA? Where, I mean, it started back in World War II. They got out in 2018. So what were they ach- trying to achieve? Yeah. So the goal here is to give the United States a strategic advantage in world affairs. Mm-hmm. And to do that by secretly knowing what other countries are saying and planning to do, what their spy agencies are planning to do, what their militaries are up to, what their embassies are up to. Uh, and so listening in to um, your adversaries' communications tells you a lot about what they're planning, right? I mean, it gives you an enormous strategic advantage in the kind of global competition that uh, among countries across the world. And, And of course, most of this transpired during the Cold War. So the stakes were very high across this period. And the countries that bought these devices and therefore were exploited by this operation included Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, Iraq, and almost every country in the Middle East, most of the countries in Africa, a large number of countries in Europe, and almost every country in Latin America. Mm. So for decade after decade, more than half a century, the United States is able to, to read all of the all of the traffic, all of the messages by those governments. Right. Um, so yeah, specifically, it, it says that they they were able to see into the 1979 hostage crisis, and um, a lot of stuff going on within South America. So can you can you kind of talk about the types of human rights abuses that that the CIA was able to see? I, I know you spoke about it in your second article on this issue. Yeah. So I mean, there are when you have when you have this much information and access to this kind of information. There are lots of ethical implications of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to be in position to witness or see or be aware of bad things that are happening in many places around the world. You're you're basically spying on governments that are run by dictators, by by um, despots, uh, very repressive regimes that are waging all kinds of very cruel campaigns. Uh, And one of the stories I wrote about this focuses on events that were happening in Latin America in the 1970s and 1980s, where military dictatorships that had been in power for many years were were assassinating dissidents, were disappearing, was the the term for it, hundreds and thousands of of, um, uh, members of opposition groups, um, perceived adversaries. And so when the United States, because of the crypto penetration, because governments, including Argentina and Chile and others, were using crypto devices, that means that the U.S. was able to listen to and track a lot of what these governments were doing. Mm-hmm. And when you have that kind of information, you know, there's always this dilemma. What do you do with it? Um, you know, there's always a trade-off in the intelligence game. If you 
learns about something that's terrible, do you stop it? Do you try to intervene? Do you try to expose it? Do you report it, for, for instance, to the United Nations? Or, because, or do you protect the access that you have? In other words, if you take any of those steps, you might expose the, your, what, your, the way by which you learned about it. Right. That country is going to become suspicious. How do they know what we're doing? Uh, we need to change our practices. Uh, and so, you know, there are huge ethical implications here for the United States and other governments, because when you look back at that history, there's really not a lot of evidence that the United States did much to stop, intervene, or call attention to uh, uh, human rights abuses mm-hmm. uh, in Latin America and other places that were extensive. Right. And it it, it seems that... Uh... You, you said that China and the Soviet Union didn't buy these devices. They were, they were suspicious in the first place? Yes. So it's really important to note that because as successful as this operation was, and, you're, and in the documents that themselves it return, refers to this as the intelligence coup of the century, there were limits. Um, through most of the history of this program, the main adversaries of the United States were the Soviet Union, and China. And uh, neither of those governments ever used crypto machines. They had their own encryption systems. They were never going to rely on anything that was coming out of the West, even if Switzerland or the United States didn't matter. Uh, They didn't trust that stuff, and so they didn't use it, and therefore they were not vulnerable. They were not exposed or exploited uh, because of this operation. So as much as it helped the United States learn what uh, governments all over the world were doing and track things that were happening. It didn't provide a lot of insight into what was happening inside the Soviet Union or China. Right. Um, now, in your in your most recent article on this topic, you you were mentioning how um, September 11th and it was kind of like this intelligence failure. Um, and I know Edward Snowden in mm-hmm. one of his um, his recent memoir, he, he kind of talked about like this competition between the NSA and the CIA and how that goes back for a while and they've kind of been bickering. And you mentioned that in your most recent article. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of, can you explain what that relationship was like through all of this? Yeah, so, I, when, so yeah, these are, these documents that we have, they're, they're almost comical in some ways and in, in the the ways that they reveal the internal rivalries among the various agencies that were involved in this operation. And in in Washington, uh, covering these spy agencies, you know, you come to understand that they have kind of distinct personalities and that the CIA is always sort of the rival of the NSA. Mm -hmm. Um, For for listeners who might not know exactly the distinction there, the CIA is the is the spy agency we all see in the movies. It's the one that you, that sends operatives overseas to try to steal secrets from other governments and other places. The NSA is a is a is a bigger agency actually, and its job is to vacuum up communications. Its job is to suck up emails all over the world, uh, radio transmissions, um, calls, and uh, taking place across fiber optic cables under the ocean to grab all of that stuff and sift through it for for little pieces of intelligence. Um, but these two agencies have always had this fractious relationship, and in the and in the documents, there's lots of really juicy stuff where they're mm-hmm. insulting one another. The CIA guys are constantly frustrated with 
the NSA um, operatives, um, you know, they're, they're, how slow they are to move, how long it takes them to realize the potential of this, how sloppy they are when it comes to tradecraft. They're always sending too many people to meetings. They come in their own names. They're not operating under disguised identities. They're exposing this operation. And then on the NSA side, they're always like freaked out because they think the CIA guys are all just like um, reckless. Mm -hmm. They're too they're too risky. They're constantly pushing the envelope of this operation and risking exposure. They're too avaricious. They want to spy on ev everybody and anything, um, even allies. So. Um, you know, there's lots of like little barbs and insults in the documents about mm -hmm. about the competition and rivalry between these two agencies. And now I kind of want to get more into like what it's like being a reporter while dealing with all of this. Can you what what's it like when you get these documents? Or is there like a legal battle to get to achieve the documents? I know that I know that you guys had to do that for um, the Afghanistan papers, but can you kind of explain what the process was when you were um, sifting through all of that? Yeah, I mean, in this case, you know, these documents are really rich and they're they're somewhat lengthy, but not terribly lengthy, right? Um, they're a hundred pages or so, the, the, the CIA version, and then there's a companion one done by the German intelligence service because this program was done in partnership with German intelligence. But, you know, as a reporter, you get a document like this, and your first step is just to is to basically read through it with an eye toward well, what is the most important thing here? How how revelatory is this? How big a deal is this? Okay, there's a lot of stuff in here that's really interesting. What is most interesting and why? Um, and uh, to me, it, you know, it only takes like ten minutes to to dive into these documents and you understand what the real bottom line for the story is. Mm -hmm there's this secret operation, the secret operation that the world has never learned about. Uh, and this, this, these documents lay that bare there that it's no more complicated than that. I mean, the story we end up writing and is a very long one. It's, um, near more than 200 inches in our, in our printed pages, um, because there's so much material here, but the bottom line is, is something you would read in the very first three paragraphs right. for more than half a century. The CIA, the CIA was secretly running a Swiss company that sold rigged encryption and equipment to most of the countries in the world. <laughs> yeah. Now, is is the relationship with the CIA and the NSA? Is that, I mean, especially since dealing with Edward Snowden and stuff like that, how how is the relationship been when trying to find contacts within these agencies? You mean for the reporting on the story? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's tricky. I mean, I've I've covered these agencies for a very long time and there are other reporters in washington who, who do this same job and i think any of us would tell you that um you you never have a great deal of visibility into what's happening inside these agencies they're spy agencies and everything right. they do is secret and all of their employees take lie detector tests in which they are asked have you ever have you had any contact with a member of the press i mean they're it's against the law for them to to tell us classified secrets. So it's quite a challenge, needless to say, as a journalist to try to figure out what these agencies are doing and what's happening inside them. Mm -hmm. uh, and you do that, you know, you do that by developing sources who can trust you over a very long time. So when a, another reporting step, when you encounter documents like this, 
having the documents themselves is super important because everything that they that all the facts that are core to the story are laid out there. You're not having to call somebody and trying to get them to tell you something. You already know the facts. They're laid out in front of you. But it's nevertheless, it's important to know people from these agencies who you can call and say, listen, I'm, I'm dealing with this material. It's fascinating and it seems very important. Can you help me make sure I'm understanding this part of it correctly and that part of it? Why would they have done this thing at such and such a time instead of something else, right? I mean, there, you end up with lots of questions that you want answered, and only if you have sources that you can turn to who trust you with them to, to protect their identities are you going to get those answers. Right. And uh, with this specific case, where did the agencies just release the documents, or did you guys obtain them first? No. So this, this is, uh, these documents remain classified. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are not publicly available. In fact, we didn't even post them on uh, the Washington Post website. Uh, and the documents were really obtained through a reporting project partnership with um, uh, a German uh, filmmaker and documentarian named Peter Muller. And his name is on all the stories I've done here. And so it was, it was wor- only working through Peter and contacts in Germany that we that we were able to put these stories together. So this was a partnership and involving um, involving people overseas. Mm, okay, and uh, now just to start closing, um, what it, what do you take from all of this? I, I I know you you won a Pulitzer for for your information on Snowden and stuff like that. Um, and I read I read your review of Edward Snowden's memoir. Mm-hmm. What what do you take from all of this? Is 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 there a really big concern for um, our security and our privacy, even though they've well, sold the company? Not so. Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think that, um, and I try to write about this in the very first story. I try to say, look, this is the history of a program that, as far as we can tell, doesn't really exist anymore. It was finally closed down in two thousand and eighteen, so it's not active. It's not happening right now. Uh, but even so, it it has relevance right now. It tells us a lot about uh, about surveillance and about U.S. spy agencies and about how they see the world and what they do. Um, and so it connects directly, in my view, to uh, the Snowden case. Um, to me, the crypto story uh, helps us understand how U.S. intelligence agencies developed their insatiable appetite for surveillance. Uh, how they came to kind of um, expect to be able to monitor the communications of governments all over the world, how that became built into their model. And um, the Snowden documents showed us how they've gone about that over the past 15 years. The crypto documents show us how they went about that leading up to that period. Uh, But it's all interconnected. And there's another important aspect of this too with, with a great deal of relevance now. I mean, there was a lot of suspicion about crypto for many, many years. Other governments became suspicious. They thought maybe there was something wrong with these machines they were buying. Uh, and um, and the company and, and the United States government and the Germans were always saying, no, 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 you guys are crazy, nothing to worry about. This is all in the up and up. It's a real company, don't worry. Well, I mean, we're we're having similar debates right now about other companies that are not based in the United States. 
the Huawei telecommunications company based in China is widely suspected of having very close ties to Chinese intelligence. And there's a great deal of worry by U.S. officials that the communications equipment made by Huawei is compromised to help China spy on the United States and other countries. Mm. There's a, a, a software, an, anti, an antivirus company in Russia called Kaspersky. Um, many companies and individuals around the, the Europe and the United States use that software, even though there's um, a good deal of suspicion that it's that it's tied to Russian intelligence. Um, so, I, you know, even though the crypto story appears to have come to an end, the kind of espionage that it represents is never going to end. I mean, we're someday probably going to look back at this moment now and read some crazy story about another compromised company selling devices relating to our phones or something uh, that that will be equally staggering and equally significant. Right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. If you want to just uh, tell people where they can find you and yeah. Thank you. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not e hard to find. I'm, uh, I've worked for the Washington Post. You can look for the crypto stories. Just you can Google my name, Greg Miller and crypto, and all, all of our stories on this subject are going to pop up. And you can also follow me on Twitter at, at Greg P. Miller. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Greg. All right. Good luck with it. Yeah, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you if you made it the entire way. And let me know what you think. Um, I think that it, it could be fun to have more reporters on. I had Ian Johnson from the New York Times, or a freelancer for the New York Times on, and now I've had Greg Miller on. Um, maybe maybe I could bring some more on to talk about breaking stories throughout the year. I do plan on having someone about someone on about the economy, or I might just do my own analysis of it. A lot's going on right now. And it's not... What's going on isn't necessarily what everyone thinks is going on so um yeah and i do plan on having um one of my cousins on who was diagnosed with cancer a while ago um we're going to be ta talking about his journey his experience with god as well as like what it's like to be standing in the face of death um i think that you'll really enjoy it he's a great person to talk to uh that should be my next interview so um Please come back. Thanks so much.